Let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. If you want to use a blue Bible in front of you, that can be found on page 951. And if you don't have a Bible with you or you know somebody who doesn't, please feel free to take that blue Bible with you. You don't need to check it out or let us know. We just want to get Bibles into as many people's hands as we can. So please take that with you. Luke chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 20 this morning. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. 
This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, this morning, with spring coming, and I have it on good authority that it is indeed coming, I thought it would be helpful if we spent a little time going over some gardening tips to get your gardens ready for the season. Now, I am not claiming to be a master gardener. However, I am a master Googler. So I looked up what I should be doing to prepare. And let me share some of what I found with you. First, before you plant those beautiful flowers or tasty veggies, you have to get your soil ready. Before you grow things, you have to remove things. Before you plant and water and fertilize, you have to break up, cut off, and pull out. First, you'll have to uproot some weeds, pull out whatever's dead, and remove any mulch that's covering up the soil. You need to remove what's dead in order to make room for new life to flourish in its place. As the faithful internet told me, remove anything in the way until you are back to the bare soil. In other words, you've got to get rid of anything that's standing in the way of this plant growing. After you've done that, now it's time to prepare the soil. And to do this, you need a sharp blade to break up the dirt that's become hardened and to turn over this same soil. This breaks up those clumps and it softens the soil to get it ready for the seed to be planted in it. And all of this has to be done before you plant. This is how you prepare your garden, how you make it ready. I promise there was a point to that. That wasn't just a bonus lesson in horticulture. This morning, this is exactly what we see in our passage. As the master gardener, God is using John to prepare his people to receive the seed of his word when Jesus begins his ministry. But before Jesus begins sowing his seed, John must prepare the way. Through his preaching, John is sent to uproot sin, clear out dead faith, and remove the layers of religiosity that covered the hearts of the people. He prunes back the dead branches in the hearts of God's people so that repentance might bear abundant fruit. And he breaks up the hardened soil of their hearts with the sharp spade of his sermons so that they'll be ready to receive the seed of God's word. That's what we see today as John fulfills exactly what was foretold of him by both the angel Gabriel and his father Zechariah. He goes before the Lord to prepare his ways, which is what Gabriel said, and he makes ready for the Lord a people prepared, which is what, actually that's what Gabriel said, his dad said the other one. Now as we look at John preparing the way this morning, we're going to see Luke focus on three things about this man John. This is going to be our outline this morning. Three things about our friend John. In verses 1 to 6, we're going to look at John's mission. Verses 7 to 14, John's message. And then finally in verses 15 to 20, we'll see John's Messiah. John's mission, John's message, John's Messiah. All right, so in this first section, look with me at John's mission. As we we look at this, we're going to see two things about his mission. 
we're going to see both its context and its content. Okay? So to see the context, look back at how chapter 3 begins. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So here Luke is giving us the context of John's mission. He doesn't just start in with what he came to do. He says, let me set the stage. Let me tell you when it happened. Because remember, back from the very beginning, Luke's goal is to write for Theophilus an orderly account. He wants to be a good historian. And so what is he doing? He's placing these events in their historical context for us. This would be like us looking around saying, well, when did that take place? Well, it took place when Biden was president and Holcomb was governor and Hogsett was mayor and Weller was pastor at Chapelwood and I don't even know, somebody else was in charge of things. So John's doing that, or Luke's doing that. He names five political leaders and two religious leaders. And all these leaders represent everything from the highest levels of Roman government down to the more local leaders, as well as the most prominent religious leaders of the day. And when Luke lists these names, not only is he telling us when these things took place, he's also telling us what the situation was like. Because these names mean virtually nothing to us. But the one thing all these leaders shared in common was that they were notorious for being proud, violent, and self-seeking men. Even the high priests are corrupt. So both politically and religiously, what we're meant to see is these were really dark days. And John's remi- or Luke's reminding us of, hey, these are all the people in positions of power. Remember them? Remember how awful they were? That's the atmosphere. That's what's going on is these guys are in power. And it's in the midst of this really dark time, God breaks his silence. Remember, it had been over four centuries since God has spoken to his people. And now when things look just utterly and absolutely hopelessly dark, the word of God comes to John. Now that phrase, the word of God came to John, that's a tip-off. For those with ears to hear back then, this would have said, whoa, 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 this is something massive. Because this is a phrase that over and over in the Old Testament signals God has raised up a prophet. Especially when you throw in the, the father's name of the prophet and the king that was ruling. I'm just going to give you a couple examples here. Zechariah 1.1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, he's the king, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. Haggai 1.1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. One more for you. Zephaniah 1.1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. And we see the same thing with Micah, 
Joel, Jonah, Hosea, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Nathan, Samuel, Elijah, and more. What's the point? When it says the word of God came, that's not a throwaway phrase. It's announcing a prophet has come. God is speaking to his people again. After 400 plus years, he's talking. So who is this prophet? Well, as we see here, it's John, the son of Zechariah, the one who was foretold would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. It would be called, what? The prophet of the Most High. And where does this word of God come to John? In the wilderness. Now, on one hand, this isn't surprising because if you look back to chapter 1, verse 80, that's where we left him. The last thing we heard of John is he went out to the wilderness and here he comes back into the scene and he's still there. But the fact that John is in the wilderness, this wilderness in the region around the Jordan River, as verse 3 says, is loaded with significance. And there's layers. There's three layers of why this is just bursting with importance. Number one, this wilderness is the same area Lot chose back in Genesis 13. When he and Abram separate and where Sodom and Gomorrah were located, Lot says, I want that part. Why is that important? Well, because it's meant to symbolize the spiritual condition of the people here is just utterly dark and horrible, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. But God is about to give people a chance of escape from judgment, just like he did Lot. Second, this wilderness is where Israel would have first come into the promised land. In order to enter what God had promised, they wandered through this wilderness and had to cross the Jordan here. Now it's no coincidence that the people of God are going back out to the same place and have to cross the Jordan again, so to speak, through baptism. Spiritually, they were still wandering in the wilderness and needed God's cleansing. Third, through this same wilderness was the way the prophets foretold when they spoke about the return from exile in Babylon. In fact, that return from exile is what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 40 which is what Luke quotes in verses 4 through 6. What's the point there? God is about to restore his people from exile. So you've got layers of significance here. And into this massively significant wilderness location, God sends his word to his prophet John. That's the context of John's mission. Now in verses 3 to 6, we see the content of John's mission. What was it that John was sent to do? Look at verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That right there sums up John's mission. He came proclaiming. He came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But what does that mean? Well, let's unpack that wordy phrase. The main thing John was calling people to do was repent. To repent means you have a change of mind 
that leads to a change in behavior. It's changing the direction of your life. It means you turn away from sin and turn to God. Remember, this is what we were told John was going to do. What was he going to do? He was going to turn many to the Lord their God. And that's what John is calling them to do. To turn from living their own ways and instead turn to God and his ways. Only by admitting they were wrong and sinful, he says, could they experience God's forgiveness. There is no forgiveness without repentance. Often we will say, and it's not wrong to say, that all you need to do is trust. All you need to do is believe. But that does not mean you don't have to repent. Because repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. They're inseparable. They're not the same. They're inseparable. Because you can't truly believe without repenting. And you can't truly repent without believing. And what we see is that when you truly repent, what's the result? The forgiveness of sins. Say, okay, that, I, I'm tracking with you. Where does baptism come into that? Well, baptism is how you show that you've repented. That you have decisively turned from your sin and you are now trusting and following Jesus. That's the message that John came proclaiming. But it wasn't just John's message. Sometimes I think we think John came preaching one thing and then later Jesus and the church come along and they have a, an updated version. Listen to what Jesus and the early church proclaimed. In Luke 24, verse 46, Jesus says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Acts 2.38, the day of Pentecost. Peter says to the crowd, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 26, Paul says to King Agrippa, here's what his ministry was. I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, what? That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. It's a consistent message. So the question now is, so why does God send John proclaiming this repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Look at verse 4. As it is written. So what John's doing is as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All right, so here Luke explains John's mission. He says, you want to know what he was up to? Here, let me tell you. How can I explain it? I know. Isaiah 40. That's what it is. Because John, Luke realizes, hey, something deeper is going on here. Like John is connected to something deeper. Remember, Isaiah 40 was written to exiles in Babylon, giving them this promise of redemption and restoration. And as part of that promise, Isaiah prophesied about a herald and a highway. Right? He says, someday, 
There's going to be a herald and a highway. Here's how one commentator explained it. It says, in the ancient world, it was customary for kings to receive a royal welcome. So when an emperor or some other eminent person was about to visit a city, the citizens could be required to prepare a well-constructed road on which he could travel with appropriate pomp and dignity on his way into the city. To make sure that people were ready to receive him, the king would send a messenger on ahead to herald the news of his coming. So picture that. You're in this little town, this little village. One day a messenger of the king shows up unexpectedly and he says, everyone, the king's coming. Get ready. So everyone pitches in that you stop what you're doing and to prepare for his arrival, this massive public works project begins to build the king a road. And this road building, it says here, involves knocking down whole mountains and raising up entire valleys so that the road can be straight and smooth. The king doesn't have to go up and down and he's, there's no bumps because it says it's going to be smooth. Now when it says in the Bible there that the rough places shall become level ways, that's actually a prophecy about Indy's potholes being filled. I'm sorry, I don't know how that guy didn't know. That's not true. But you get the picture that this was a massive undertaking to prepare for the arrival of the king. And for John's road building project, he's got even bigger obstacles to overcome. By preaching repentance, what John is doing, he's calling people to tear down the mountains of their pride and anger and self-reliance. To fill in the valleys of their despair and greed and jealousy. To straighten out the crookedness of their speech and level off the rough places of their behavior toward others. John is tilling up the soil of their hearts, clearing the sinful stubble so that it's ready for the seed of the kingdom. Now, one more thing that's important to notice here. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see that the same passage from Isaiah 40, it's also quoted by Matthew, it's also quoted by Mark, but only Luke includes what you see there in verse 6. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Why is that there? It's because Luke's announcing again already. He's saying, hey, this king that's coming, he's coming to save all kinds of people. He's a savior for all kinds of sinners, not just Jewish sinners, Gentile sinners. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, this king's salvation stretches to you. That's why Luke is slipping it in there. It's in the Isaiah 40, but he's the only one that includes it in his quote. So what we see is John's building a road back to God from the wilderness of sin and exile. And that road is the road of repentance. So that's John's mission, okay? That's what he came to do. Now let's look a little closer at John's message in this message. As we look at his message, we're going to see two main things. We see a call to repentance in verses 7 to 9. And we'll see the fruit of repentance in verses 10 to 14. So look first at his call to repentance in verse 7. I love this. He starts off by calling them vipers. 
This is not seeker-sensitive preaching. I mean, can you imagine? This is like the one Sunday you bring your friend to church for the first time. Like, hey, let's go hear the new preacher. He gets up. You guys are a bunch of snakes. Thank you. You guys like that. John's not pulling any punches here. The sharp spade of his preaching is piercing into the soil of their hearts, and it's rooting up at least three different kinds of false reliances. First, John goes after their reliance on religious rituals. Look at verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. See, some people that were coming out, they were being baptized as a sign of their genuine repentance and turning toward God. But there were also others who heard John talk about God's coming judgment against sin, and all they were looking for was a way to avoid God's wrath. They're just like, fine, if that's what I got to do, I got to get in the water, you put me under, fine. I'll go through the motions, but I have no interest in leaving my sin behind me. They thought all they needed to do was perform the ritual, and then they'd be good. And John compares those people to offspring of vipers. In other words, John's saying, you guys are the seed of the serpent. And when these seed of the serpent are warned about the fire of God's wrath, he said it's like a snake hiding under a bush. As the fire is coming, they just try to slither away out of danger. They have no desire to shed their serpent skin and actually repent. They just don't want to get caught in the fire. People still do this today. They rely on getting baptized or going to church or praying a prayer or coming forward. They're not interested in repenting and decisively turning from their sin and leaving it in the past. They're just looking for some rituals. Give me something I can do. Something I can look back on and say, I did that thing so that I know that when things get hard, I've got to get out of hell free card. That's all I want. I'm not, I'm not looking to change my life. I'm just looking to not get in trouble. But John wasn't fooled by people like this, and neither is God. Rituals like baptism can symbolize repentance, but rituals can never substitute for repentance. Instead, John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, don't just say it, show it. If you're truly repentant, your life will change. It's unavoidable. You can't really repent and just keep doing the same sinful things you were doing. Because real repentance leads to real change, and it will be evident by the fruit that shows up in your life. If you have no fruit of repentance and your life looks the same as it ever did or your life looks the same as your friend who's not a Christian, you need to be honest with yourself and admit that maybe you haven't actually repented. On the other hand, if you're a believer and you struggle with wondering whether your fruit of repentance is good enough or whether there's enough of it, let me remind you, it's not about how much fruit you have or whether the fruit of repentance you have is perfect. The only thing that matters is, is your fruit real? 
It doesn't matter how small or sparse the fruit of repentance may be, but only does it show that the life it's growing on is a repentant one. John's words were meant to both confront and comfort. But then rituals aren't the only wrong reliance John exposes as he turns over the soil of their hearts. Next, he calls out reliance on relationships. Look at verse 8. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. See, some of the people there, they thought they were right with God just because they're Jewish. It's like, I know I'm, a, I'm one of his people. Like, I know me and God are good because I'm Jewish. They were counting on who they were related to and what group they belonged to. Just like people today can assume they're good with God because I came from a Christian home. My parents were Christians. My grandpa was a pastor, for crying out loud. They consider themselves Christians because it's, it's been passed down to them. It's kind of like it's who we are as a family. Or because they belong to a church. Or because they belong to a certain denomination. But John blows that up and says, you think God has to have you because he needs people to be the children of Abraham? Like, like you're indispensable? You see those rocks? He can make his people out of those rocks. He doesn't need you. To us today, he would say, you think you're safe? You think you're good with God because, well, God needs people in the church. I hear all the time, like, churches are dwindling and everything, so I'm willing to be here, so, yeah, God kind of needs me. He says, God could just turn those stones into members and fill up his churches if he wants. In fact, hasn't he done just that? By giving stone-hearted people like you and me new hearts to love and trust him? Then one more. Some people, both then and now, were relying on the idea that there's no rush. No big hurry. I hear you, John. And someday, I think that's a good idea. Someday I'm going to get around to living the way God wants me to. But hey, I've got plenty of time. I'm I'm young. To that, what does John say in verse 9? Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, John says, look, judgment is coming, and it's coming soon. And if the tree of your life doesn't bear the good fruit of repentance from sin and faith in Jesus, the acts of God's judgment will cut you down and you will be thrown into the fire of his wrath. John's saying, don't wait. This is not a a someday thing. This is a, if you haven't repented, you need to do so today. You don't have tomorrow promised to you. Okay, so John has called the people to repent. And then in verses 10 to 14, he shows them what that fruit of repentance looks like. Look at verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you were authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, 
Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Now, I love this because this is exactly what we should do after we're confronted by God's word. We should ask, what then shall we do? How should this change my life? In fact, that's always the question we should be asking when we hear God's word. Today, you should ask that question when you leave this morning. Lord, what then should I do? In fact, this is why we have small groups, is so that we can ask and answer that question, what then shall we do together? So here we've got three different groups. Three different groups coming to ask John, hey, John, what does repentance actually look like? I'm with you, but I just don't know what that means for my life. You've got crowds, tax collectors, and soldiers. And John's answer to the three groups are both the same in some ways, but also different for each group. They're the same in that they all deal with two things. Did you notice this? They all deal with what they do with money and how they treat people. Why those two things? I think it's because these are two ways our hearts are really revealed. How we deal with money and how we treat others. And real repentance creates heart-level change in areas like this. Because repentance that doesn't actually affect our bank accounts or our relationships is only superficial. But if you've actually been changed by God's grace, it will show itself even in the hard-to-change areas like these. Because real repentance always leads to real change. So they're all the same in that way. And yet, John's answer to what that repentance looks like is different for each group. For the crowds, he calls them to be generous. For the tax collectors, he calls them to be just. And for the soldiers, he calls them to be content. Or another way to think of it is this. For some, repentance meant give. For others, repentance meant stop taking. And for others, repentance meant be happy with what you have. What we're supposed to see here is that repentance isn't one size fits all. Repentance is particular to people and groups. Repentance means turning from your particular sins. To turn from your particular sins, you need to know your particular sins and admit your particular sins. You need to know your heart and where you're prone to wander. Because real repentance isn't turning from some vague, general idea of sin. It's specific. It's concrete. It's not, I turn from the idea of sin because we don't sin in the abstract. We sin in the concrete. And so turning away from the things that you actually do and think and feel and say and desire that are wrong is what real repentance requires. So John's message we see was the same for everyone. We need to repent. And yet the fruit of that repentance was specific to each hearer. And that brings us to our last point. John's Messiah. Look at verse 15. 
As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So imagine the scene. John has just kind of burst into, burst out of obscurity. Now he's on the scene proclaiming God's word in a way that hasn't been heard for 400 years. People are flocking to him. Everyone's talking about him. He's causing quite the stir. So people start to wonder, is this, is this the Messiah? I mean, something's happening here. We haven't seen this before. Maybe it's him. Could it be him? So they ask, hey, hey John, are you? And but John says, no. He quickly shuts down their speculation and shifts their focus onto the real Messiah who is coming. And he does that by giving us three ways that he says, the one coming, the real one, oh, he's way better than I am. Three ways that John's Messiah is better than John. First, John's Messiah is worthier. You, you got to know back then, removing someone's sandals to wash their feet was a servant's job. In fact, it was so gross, because you got to picture... I mean, they didn't have shoes, right? So they're wearing these sandals, walking around all day on dusty, muddy roads, and it left the people's feet just gross and disgusting and nasty. And it was such a lowly job that it wasn't just a servant's job. They wouldn't let Jewish servants do it. They're like, no, no, no. I know they're a servant, but that's even below, a, below them. You got to go get a Gentile servant in order to do that. It's just that nasty. And yet John... John, the one about whom Jesus will say later, among those born of women, none is greater than John. That John says, I'm not even worthy to untie the coming one's sandals. That's how much greater Jesus was than John. But here's what's jaw-dropping about Jesus. This same one who was so much worthier than the greatest man was the same one who on the very night he would be betrayed and arrested, laid aside his outer garment and washed his disciples' feet. The worthiest one was doing the lowliest job of washing the grossest and most disgusting parts of his followers. That's amazing. But what's even more jaw-dropping is that he does the same for you and me. Because the one who was coming came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. Jesus, the worthiest one, got down as low as possible and did the most degrading thing imaginable. He died our criminal's death to wash and cleanse the grossest and most disgusting parts of our hearts. Jesus paid for every single one of our sins. Every sin that we turn away from, Jesus took away on the cross. 
That's why it's through him alone that we have forgiveness of sins. But to receive that forgiveness, friends, we must repent and believe. That raises the question, how can we do that on our own? We can't. That's why Jesus is better than John in a second way. Because his baptism is better. While John could only immerse repentant people in water, Jesus immerses us in his Holy Spirit. John's baptism was outward and a symbol. Jesus' baptism is inward and the reality. Jesus gives us his spirit to make us alive when we're spiritually dead. And then by his spirit, he grants us repentance. He grants us repentance and he gives us faith to believe. The Spirit then sanctifies us to make us holy like Jesus. He empowers us to live differently and to witness boldly. And he seals us to keep and guard us all the way home. That's why Jesus' baptism is even better than the guy they called the Baptist. I mean, that's the dude's name. He's called the Baptist. And he's like, oh, no, my baptism is nothing. You should see this guy's. Finally, third thing we see about John's Messiah is that his judgment is ultimate. His judgment is ultimate. Back then they would use a pitchfork. They'd gather all their wheat and they'd, gather this, they'd use this pitchfork to toss the wheat up in the air and the wheat was heavy enough that it would fall back down but the chaff was so light that the wind would just blow it away. He says that's what Jesus will do as judge. He will separate all humanity into just two categories. Just two. It's much more simple than a lot of religious surveys make it. He's not interested in which of these 17 different boxes you check. There are two boxes. Those who repented and those who didn't. Those who repent and believe, it says, will be gathered to him. But those who don't, he will burn with unquenchable fire. Friends, there's only two outcomes. Eternal joy with Jesus in his kingdom or eternal punishment under his wrath. These are the sobering realities about John's Messiah. Finally, look how our passage ends in verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. First thing I want you to see there is, I love that he says this. This message of repentance isn't a message of doom and gloom. It's good news. Think, why? He's telling everybody to change their lives completely. Why would this be called good news? Why? Because forgiveness is available. There's a way. Second, you can actually change. If he just called people to change and said, well, you, I mean, you have to, but you can't, that would not be good news. But he says, you can change. Forgiveness is available because the mightier and worthier one has come and brought salvation to all who heed his call to repent. And then the passage ends with John being imprisoned. As we're watching this 
John exits stage left. What does that tell us? John's mission is over. The herald has proclaimed his message. The way has been prepared. Now it's time for the king to come. Friends, the king is coming. So let us prepare the way in our own hearts. As Martin Luther said in the first of his 95 theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So let us hear John's word to us this morning and clear the soil of our hearts of anything that hinders our love for Jesus so that our faith will flourish and our lives will bear the fruit of repentance. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you sent John to be a herald. Lord, we need to hear his call to repent every day. And so I pray that this morning you would grant repentance to us, that we would search our hearts, that we would know the ways we turn away from you, and that we would turn back. We would be done with whatever that sin is, and we would run back to our Father who is running to meet us like the prodigal son. Would you remind us afresh as we take the supper today that Jesus has paid for every one of those, that the worthy one came and did the lowest, most humble thing imaginable in order that the gross and disgusting parts of our sinful hearts could be cleansed. Thank you for that. Would you remind us again today of how good it is to have clean hearts so that we can draw near to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.